Hey guys, I'm Paul Bates and this is the Fermentation Podcast. Join me on this journey to put fermentation into practice, create culture, and revive this lost art that connects all of us to our cultures of the past. Today is Friday, January 23rd, 2015, and this is episode number 21. So today is definitely going to be a fun one because it is all about you. This is the listener feedback show. I went ahead and compiled some of the feedback I've been receiving with comments, questions, and just the general mood of the audience. So yes, this is a show that's all yours since it's made up of everything that you guys have been sending me. I also see all the mail that comes through and respond to everyone. And since this is a community, I'm sure a lot of you are probably having the same questions. So instead of just answering one by one, we can all learn at the same time. And you also get to have your question on the air, which is kind of fun. So if you want your question addressed, just send me an email at paul at com, or go to fermentationpodcast.com and click on the contact button on the top. Shoot me a message and I'll do my best to answer it or at least point you in the right direction of where you can possibly find the answer. So it sounds like you guys have been busy making a lot of different ferments and it's great to hear you're experimenting, so keep it up. All right, so before I get into your feedback, I want to go over some updates on my last show, which was the Sourdough Starter Show. Like I had said in the previous show, Jane Campbell of Fermenter's Kitchen had sent me a sourdough starter in dehydrated form. So it was broken into pieces and it was powdered. So it wasn't actually a wet starter. It was actually dehydrated. Anyway, I went ahead and rehydrated it over the past week using the methods she had sent me, which was a couple tablespoons of water and then a couple tablespoons of flour at a time every 12 hours. And within maybe two to three days, I started seeing bubbles, so it's alive. Anyways, as this new sourdough starter was moving along, I was comparing it to one I had in the past, you know, which I had made from wild yeast in the air. And I can tell you, at least from my experience, there can be a big difference if you're starting from wild yeast and bacteria versus starting from a starter that's been actually proven out. And the smell of my previous starter was usually just kind of okay, and it did have somewhat of a sour smell, and it was bubbly, so it did work. But the smell of this one, I'd say, is totally different. I've always heard it should have somewhat of like a, a sweet, yeasty kind of a smell, and that's not necessarily the aroma my last sourdough starter had. So this new one, it actually does smell slightly sweet, and it does have a, a nice yeasty aroma. So it, it's pretty exciting to finally have a sourdough starter that's actually stood the test of time. And I've also actually tasted it to see if the pH was actually lower since... It didn't have that sour smell of the last one, and whoa, I can definitely tell you, there was a, a sour taste there, so I think it's going to give some recipes a, a great flavor. As soon as I make some bread or pancakes or you know sourdough biscuits or whatever, I'll let you guys know how it turns out, and if you guys have any good results or you know ideas when it comes to sourdough, just send them my way because I'll be experimenting. All right, let's get into your feedback for this week. All right, so the first one comes in from Rick, and Rick says, I can see how good the fermentation of foods are, but what do you do with them? I mean, a little on the side for a steak or on a sandwich or sauerkraut and sausages. Does cooking kill the good bacteria we strive to get? It's like pasta pickles at Thanksgiving. You eat one or two and go on to the sides and main course. Maybe you can do a podcast on what to do with the stuff that we fermentate. Love the podcast and getting real close to starting my first sauerkraut. Real tempted by the nice, shiny, handmade crocs on Etsy. Haha. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. So yeah, see what you're actually asking. Fermentation is good, you know, tastes good, and it's also good for you. But in terms of what to do with them, I would say most of them are really just condiments, like I always say. Except in terms of, 
you know, when you make drinks and when you make um, like sourdough breads, like I've been covering recently, the majority of like pickled vegetables and pickled fruits and maybe even pickled roots, they're definitely more of like a condiment. Uh, I guess when you get into tempeh and miso, they almost kind of become the main course and also lend itself to to different dishes. Like with miso, you can mix that into salad dressings. You can actually, you could probably spread it on sandwiches, although, you know, more likely you're going to be making some kind of a soup. And it does make a, a great base for soups. But it seems like you can do so many different things with all of this stuff. So since you mentioned, you know, sauerkraut and sausages, and you're probably more referring to pickles, you know, do you just make a main course out of this? Or, you know, what do I do personally? So take pickled cucumbers, for instance. Sometimes I just have those as a snack. You know, I'll take a, a pickle, or me and my wife will take a pickle out of the jar and then slice it up into little discs and just eat them as they are. And, you know, it's a, a nice, salty kind of refreshing snack after working out and, you know, you've been sweating and losing all those minerals. But a lot of times I really love pickles on sandwiches. I think they just have a great flavor, especially, like I said before, pickled peppers. And I actually just had a, a sandwich today where I put pickled peppers all over it, even though it, it really turned it crazy spicy. But you can do other things too, like say if you have sauerkraut or, you know, any really any other pickled vegetables, as long as you're cutting them up small enough, you can mix them into rice dishes, probably even put them into some kind of a spaghetti, or just give your favorite dishes, you know, that different bit of a, a sourness to it that also adds saltiness to it. And like I said before, you know, when I make a, a rice, so say I'm using two cups of rice, instead of using four cups of water, I'll use maybe three and a half cups of water and then a half a cup of brine. You know, and that's either from my dill pickles or from my pickled peppers. So I'd make the rice a little bit spicy. And I've even put um, the pickled pepper brine into uh, chili. And that ended up being really good. And like I said before, I also used the, the dill pickle brine and mashed potatoes. And that was really amazing. But you can add flavor to other things. Like if you make a hummus, you know, like a, a chickpea garbanzo bean spread, which is a, a traditional kind of a Mediterranean thing. It's a it's a spread made of chickpeas, and it also has garlic and tahini, which is a, a sesame paste from sesame seeds. You can actually mix some of these ferments into there and, you know, blend it up really well, and that'll add that kind of tanginess. Normally, you also put a, a lemon or a lime, you know, some of the juice in there. But if you use either some of the juice or even just some of the, the pickled vegetables, that, that can be really good. You can also add it as almost like a side dish, like you were saying. Uh, a lot of Indian dishes, they actually have a side dish that's completely just pickled vegetables. And it's extremely tangy, and it's usually extremely uh, spicy, too. So that's one thing you can do, I guess, fresh. Another one I did was uh, some of the pickles that I've had, they got a little bit too soft, maybe even just gone a little bit too far instead of throwing them away you can actually blend them up into like a smoothie spread them on a dehydrator sheet and then blend that up once it's dehydrated down to like a, a fine crusty sheet and then you make a powder and then basically you have a pickle salt which is really good and i've also heard people making a kimchi salt or really any other kind of ferment that you can make you know like a hot sauce you can make a like a spicy jalapeno salt. And really, you know, the imagination, is, there's almost unlimited amount of things that you can do with this. Like previously, when I had uh, Mark Campbell on, 
he actually takes sauerkraut and puts it on pizza or tacos. So he calls it his pizza kraut or taco kraut. So you can add it to some of these main dishes, even the cooked ones, adding it right on top. And it'll just change them just that little bit where it's it's a little bit different than you're normally used to. And it might even become somewhat of like your favorite thing, like like Mark does. You know, now he can't have pizza or tacos without his kraut on top of it. I'm sure you can even add that that little bit of a, a flavor to a smoothie. Whether, you know, normally you don't add salty things to smoothies, but if you want to get that little bit of probiotics that you just want to add to your diet, that's one thing you can do. Add either some kind of a pickle in there or some of the brine. Or say you're making some kind of a, a main dish and you want just that hint of different flavor in there, you can, say, baste something in a, a brine rather than creating, you know, your own kind of a brine. Or add some of these pickle juices or some of these ferment juices into a gravy that makes it pretty interesting. And especially around the holidays, you can make all of these flavors kind of come to life and take on different meanings for people. So take a holiday like Thanksgiving or maybe even Easter or even, I guess, Fourth of July. You know, Fourth of July, normally it's barbecue, but maybe you can make like a, a barbecue sauce and put some of these tangy brines in there and, and make a barbecue sauce that just has that extra special flavor that you can't quite place what it is, but it also has that special probiotic content that you're looking for too. So I hope that answers your question and good luck on making your first sauerkraut. That'll be awesome to hear about it. I can't wait to, to hear whether it worked or not. You have to write back in and let me know, Rick. And this was kind of cool. As I was answering this question, I read the next one and actually kind of blended right in with this one. So the next one comes in from Richard, who I hear from quite a bit. Sounds like he's been busy. And it says, I like the idea of rescuing a ferment gone mushy via dehydrating. I've done that too, but it got me thinking about using fermented food in conventional recipes. I've always shelved that idea because if you cook it, the bacteria is killed, but I don't consider the taste benefit. Today I added fermented chili pepper to a soup and there was a detectable change in flavor over adding dried pepper flakes. And then I wondered about using miso. You want it for the flavor, but mostly for the beneficial bacteria and the soup making kill the good stuff. So on the first part of your question about uh, rescuing a ferment gone mushy by dehydrating, it is kind of nice to have that kind of in your toolkit to do. And I know it doesn't have the probiotic content that you're looking for, but it definitely has the taste. Almost, I guess, as if you were going to compare it to, say, you go out to your garden and you pick a lot of fresh herbs and when you use them right away, you know, within hours of actually picking them, it actually has the, the highest nutritional content along with all the good phytochemicals and everything. But a lot of times when we're cooking, most of the time we're just using, you know, dried herbs and mostly because we can't have those fresh herbs all the time. So say you take like basil, in the wintertime I don't have any basil left because all the plants have died back. So I guess it just comes down to a harvest extender kind of a thing. And that's pretty much the same thing with ferments. So if you have, you know, tons of pickles in the fridge that have now gone soft or maybe they weren't even great to begin with, rather than throwing them away, it's just another way to use a resource reusing and recycling it back into the system. And yeah, you can definitely create a, a lot of great flavors with all these different recipes. And like I was saying when I answered the previous question from the, the previous person writing in, there's so many different creative ways to use these things. And a lot of chefs are starting to, to pick these ideas up because you can't just go out and buy a lot of these things. A lot of times you have to make it yourself. 
like the, with the sourdough starter I was talking about in the beginning. There's nothing really down in the bakery aisle of your grocery store that'll give you that kind of a flavor. You just kind of have to make a sourdough starter. And yeah, when you dehydrate these ferments, it doesn't necessarily have the probiotic content you're looking for, but definitely the flavor. And speaking of probiotics, on the, the second part of your question, does cooking actually kill the probiotics or, or kill the life that we're looking for in these ferments? A certain amount of cooking actually does kill everything. So if you cook something for a long time at like a high temperature, you're not going to get any kind of like uh, probiotic benefit from it except for maybe like the, the acids and the minerals and, and things that those unlock. But if you want things that are actually living, then... Say you make a, like a miso soup, you put the miso in and then wait for the, the water to cool a little bit, not, you know, boiling, and then you can mix it up and then eat it right away. But if you leave it in a, a hot environment for too long, then it's going to kill everything. So yes, cooking actually does kill the probiotics, but it's not something you really even need to be worried about because you're probably consuming these things raw anyway on, you know, so, so many different counts like the pickles. You're probably not going to be cooking pickles, you know, unless you put the pickle juice into mashed potatoes and cook that. But if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're not cooking all of your stuff, you know, to kill everything. You know, maybe you're eating yogurt or having kombucha or water kefir or any other, you know, number of different ferments that you make. So cooking, personally for me, I'm not really that worried about it, you know, to kill the probiotic content because I'm mostly after the flavor. And offhand, you're going to be having plenty of the stuff to, to have the probiotic content. And the more you get into the habit of actually integrating a lot of this stuff into your cooking, you know, some of it ends up in your salad or some of it ends up in a smoothie. And, you know, the more you interact with it and actually bring it into your life, the more you're actually going to have the probiotics, even if you cook some of it, it's not a big deal. So yes, generally, I would say soup making probably kills all of the, the actual live bacteria in there, unless it's very, very low temperature. So if you have something that's kind of simmering and you put any kind of brine in there, you're probably going to kill everything. But like I said, it's not just for the beneficial bacteria. You really want that flavor. So don't even worry about killing any of the stuff in there. You know, just keep incorporating it into your diet. Keep experimenting, you know, with all these different flavors to see if you can come up with something new. And, you know, always get back to me and let me know what's going on. All right, the next one comes in from David. And he writes in saying, Hi, Paul. As I was picking up my son driving early Wednesday morning, I was listening to the Thanksgiving podcast. So many things to try, so little time. I was interested in doing the O'Lardy Ladies fermented pumpkin butter. One ingredient, culture starter. When I clicked on this, I was led to some sort of product. What is culture starter and what can be used? I wasn't wanting to buy something special, but use just normal household ingredients. And I heard you say when using whey to add about four tablespoons per quart. So that's a fourth a cup per quart. Can I use that instead? And he also writes in and says, The fermented chicken feed is going good news and bad news. The good news is that the chickens absolutely love it and they come out to eat breakfast. When I was feeding it to them dry, there was a lot wasted. The bad news is that now we get only about one egg per week. However, I have to attribute that more to the cold than the feed. I think this is their second year in our coop, so they're probably running out of eggs. And he also says, I finally got my sourdough starter going. I had to cheat and add yeast. Sorry, cats. As in, you know, Sandra Cats, mainly because we were a bit cooler here in the Appalachian Mountains and finding a toasty warm room is a problem in my inefficiently heated house. Anyway, thank you for your work, David. 
So thanks for writing in, David. On the first part of your question about the culture starter, I know there's a, a lot of different recipes out there that, you know, they call for like a culture starter to get something going. Because if you leave different things just to themselves, they're probably not going to really do anything, at least, you know, not right away. And then you might get some kind of a, a bad bacteria or bad yeast that get in there and maybe kind of turn it like a, a little sour tasting or maybe not a taste that you're quite going for. And especially if you're dealing with like a, a pumpkin butter, like they were saying. And I think I remember in that recipe, it's actually pumpkin that's been cooked down. So, and then when you cook something, just like with, with anything, everything's completely killed. So you're starting off just with the, the actual material there and no actual living organisms. So the reason for the culture starter is to get something in there to actually start eating that matter and consuming it. But you don't actually need to go out and buy any kind of a culture starter. If you have things going that you're already using right now, like you had mentioned whey, you can definitely use whey to actually get things going because it's it's very active and has the microorganisms that will start consuming that matter and consuming those sugars. But I have to warn you, of course, it's, it's going to be slightly different than maybe a starter that you would buy, like I was saying in the beginning of this episode with the sourdough starter. But some ideas to actually get a culture started, like with the pumpkin butter, I mean, you could try pickle juice, especially if it's pickle juice that you've actually made yourself and that's produced really good pickles. You can use whey. You can use uh, pickled pepper juice. Although that would be kind of interesting having a pumpkin butter that's spicy. You can use water kefir. You can use kombucha. You could probably even use your sourdough starter, although that would give it a, a pretty sour flavor. I'm sure you could even use um, dairy kefir. And I'm sure you could even use uh, wild yeast. So say you have something like the pumpkin butter on the counter and you continually keep stirring the thing. As long as it's a uh, slightly liquidy, you could probably even trap some of the, you know, the wild yeast and wild bacteria. Although, if you do it that way, since you're starting out with the pumpkin butter that's not necessarily very acidic, if you get some kind of a, a culture in there to start with, say like pickle juice or sauerkraut juice or something along those lines that's already acidic, it'll give it a, a jump start in terms of acidity. So then you won't have things like mold because mold grows in a, a low acidic environment. As soon as you start to get acidic, then, you know, mold doesn't really want to grow in there. And especially in like an anaerobic environment. So if you're trying it the wild way, say you have a jar that has like a, a wide mouth and maybe get it just slightly liquidy, continually stir it several times a day, and then, you know, cover it with like a cheesecloth and a, a string or a rubber band. And then the moment it actually starts getting bubbly, I would maybe put some kind of an airlock on it, whether that's an airlock like I just recently discovered with the probiotic jar, or say it's like a, a water moat crock, or the kraut source, which is the, the lid that you can screw on top of a mason jar. And then you can kind of keep that going in the anaerobic environment with the addition of the the acid that's in there, you know, whatever kind of vinegar that you add. And you can probably even add just a distilled white vinegar if you really wanted to, just to drop the pH a little bit. The distilled vinegar isn't going to add any kind of life to it, but at least it's going to drop the pH somewhat to give more of an environment where maybe the wild yeast and wild bacteria can start multiplying. But to trap those yeasts, you definitely want to keep stirring it like crazy. But really, like you were kind of hinting to in the beginning of the question, if you want to just the easy way, start off with whatever kind of starter that you already have. Like I would just do a pickle juice or a, a sauerkraut juice, probably maybe even the sauerkraut juice because it, it would have less of the dill flavor of the pickle juice and try that. And I'm sure that would ferment out, you know, just perfectly. 
Uh, some of the other parts of your email is nice to hear. Actually, somebody tried the fermented chicken feed just to see how that's going. You know, you have to keep getting back to me on that just to let me know whether that's really working or did that turn out not to be the case. In any case, I'm sure it's probably just a, a little bit of a benefit to your chickens, but it'll be nice to hear people actually trying that to see what happens. And it's great to hear that you actually got a, a sourdough started, even if you have to add a little bit of yeast just to maybe get things kick-started. I mean, I know it's not the actual traditional way, but I mean, really, when you add the yeast in there, you're kind of inoculating it a little bit with a, a tiny bit of life in there. And when you continually keep that going, say, you know, build it up to two cups and then remove a cup of it, use it for something, and then add it in there... I think over time, eventually, it's just going to stabilize. So really, no matter what you kind of start with, it'll kind of change over time and and form some kind of like a, an equilibrium within the community. But as long as you had some kind of life in that sourdough and it's actually working for you, then that's great. And I'm sure being in the Appalachian Mountains, you probably have much different you know, wild yeast and bacteria than they do over in San Francisco with their San Francisco sourdough. And that's, that's the great thing about all these different kind of cultures. I mean, you might end up with a much different flavor than, say, somebody over in Europe or somebody over in Asia. But in any case, awesome to see you get that started. And if you have any, you know, good recipes that you've been using your sourdough for, just send them my way also, since I've been kind of messing around with the sourdough. So thanks again, David. The next one comes in from Rebecca, and this was in reference to the spicy fermented carrot sticks recipe that I had posted and that I had used as an appetizer for Thanksgiving. She writes in and she asks, I'm assuming that all regular city tap water is chlorinated. Is well water usually chlorinated or do you just use distilled water? Well, Rebecca, I would say probably every municipality has chlorinated water. And that's not some big conspiracy to make us all sick. It's just to clean the water so we actually have potable drinking water. But if you're using the water in ferments, then obviously that's going to cause a problem because it's going to try to kill everything, just like it's killing all the organisms in the water so we can drink it in the first place. So chlorine is definitely very abundant. Some a little bit more than others. You know, some people smell the water and they can constantly smell the chlorine. And, you know, you might even have to get a, a filter just to get that out. But there are some municipalities, they don't just use a regular kind of chlorine. They use a chlorine that actually stays around for quite a while. And normally you can fill a pot of water and boil it a little bit, and it'll actually boil off that chlorine. Or you could even, you know, fill a jar or a, a mug or or some kind of big container, say with like a gallon of water, half gallon of water, leave it out on the counter for a few days, and it'll actually off-gas that chlorine just like it would in a swimming pool, you know, when people have to buy chlorine all the time, and because the chlorine is just kind of disappearing, it's just off-gassing. But some municipalities use a chlorine that's very resilient, it just doesn't seem to off-gas like that. So if you're in a situation like that where you're using city water, and when you try to off-gas it, you know, leave it for a few days and let the chlorine kind of dissipate, and your ferments still just can't get going, it might have that different kind of a chlorine like I was talking about. And you can probably even get some kind of a water filter, say a, maybe a Brita filter that has the carbon in it, or uh, a Berkey, or if you have a refrigerator that has a, a removable filter, you know, get one of those. Or like you said, you know, you could even just use distilled water if you really had to. But if you have well water, that's not actually chlorinated because it just comes from, you know, ancient aquifers underground. The only reason water ends up being chlorinated in the first place is because humans have put chlorine into it. 
So if you're just using well water, that should be completely fine. Unless, you know, your well water is contaminated with something down there. You know, like if you're in a, an area where they're constantly fracking and you have these chemicals in there, you're really just going to have to experiment and see whether or not the water is going to be working for you. Uh, I'm sure you can even do some kind of a, a water test, but, you know, those cost money and really it just comes down to experimentation and what's actually working. But I would say probably well water is probably the best kind of water in terms of, you know, not being actually contaminated with chlorine. But, you know, nowadays, most people actually have city water, so the chlorine actually is a, a really big issue. So myself personally, I just have a refrigerator that has one of those removable filters that I use. It's a, a carbon filter. And when I smell tap water and then smell the water coming out of the refrigerator little spout there with the filter on it, it smells completely different. It doesn't smell like chlorine, whereas the city water smells just that faint hint of chlorine. So in any case, you know, try to use some water that doesn't have any kind of chemicals or chlorine in it. And if you're using well water, you know, try that, see if it works. If it doesn't, switch to distilled just to see if that works. And, you know, if the distilled works and the well water isn't working, then obviously there's some kind of problem there. And you can even, say if you have well water, get like a, a Berkey water filter or some kind of filter where you can actually fill it up and then filter it yourself. So I hope that answers your question. All right, the next one comes in from Terry, and this is in reference to my pickle salt recipe that I had posted a, a while back. And Terry says, what a great idea, pickle salt. I think it would be a great addition to flax crackers for a bit of zing. Right now, I don't have any pickles to turn into salt, but I do have some raw sauerkraut that is a bit less than fresh. Bet that would work. Going to give that a try. That's definitely the spirit. If you have any kind of ferment that's just not quite the, the texture that you're looking for, but it still has a great flavor, you can definitely dehydrate that and then blend it up into a powder to make some kind of a salt. And I've actually seen a, a bunch of different people make, uh, say, kimchi salt or even sauerkraut salt just to have something different. You know, if you're making a whole bunch of sauerkraut and you just don't want to eat all of it, you can always powder it and then kind of store it away, turn it into a long-term storable food. And maybe you can even add that to, I, I don't know if you guys have seen where uh, you have like a meal in a jar. It's like a, a mason jar, say a one-quart mason jar, and you fill it part of the way with some beans, part of the way with rice, uh, maybe dehydrated carrots, dehydrated celery, maybe even some herbs and seeds and uh, salt and pepper. Uh, but if you throw a little bit of uh, pickle salt or sauerkraut salt in there, that'll just add that extra zing like Terry was saying. And then one day if you're hungry and, you know, you have that urge to, to go out to dinner or to go out to lunch, maybe just crack that jar open and dump it into a pot with some water and you have a, a nice meal there that even has a ferment in there that's also a long-term storable food. And another idea, I guess, is one thing that I've liked. Some of you probably don't like tofu, but my wife actually made some tofu not that long ago where she sliced it into kind of um squares and just fried those up in a pan, but also sprinkled the pickle salt on it at the same time. And what a great flavor that gave it. I'm sure if you're uh, making some kind of meats or some kind of uh, main dishes, just sprinkle that over that at the end, and you'll definitely get that acidic, salty, sour kind of flavor that you're probably not going to find in any of your spices in your cabinet. So yeah, if you have any kind of ferments that aren't that texture that you like, just dehydrate them and blend them up into a powder. And if you use them in any kind of interesting way, you know, write in and let me know about it. 
And the next one comes in from a lady named Olga. And she says, Paul, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now, and I was hooked since I had already been dabbling with fermenting for a couple of years. I love what I'm learning still, and your guests are also very interesting. Please don't stop podcasting. I listen to your shows over and over on my way to work, on my way to home. I just finished packing a jar of carrots, and they are fermenting as I type. I'll let you know how they turned out. Thank you for being there for people like me who never get tired of hearing about fermentation. Well, Olga, thank you so much for writing in. Boy, that was a very nice comment on the podcast. It's a lot of fun when I have people writing in saying they actually love the podcast. You know, I never thought I would be a, a podcaster. This is kind of crazy that I even have people writing in to, you know, say hi or to give me a suggestion or to even be on the show or, you know, even to give me a compliment like that. That's very cool. But yeah, I'll definitely try to keep going and keep on podcasting. I actually have quite a few ideas for a couple upcoming guests. I have two of which that are, you know, already set these two different ladies that you'll hear about in the future and quite a few other ones that I already have like on the list of people to contact. And of course, Olga, if you have anybody in mind, you know, just let me know and I'll get into contact with them if you think they might be interesting. And if you think it's something that you want to hear, I mean, you're obviously a, a very avid listener, so I want to provide you with whatever you want to hear about. And I'm always so surprised that when I bring different people on, how some people have just slightly a different view of somebody else, but some things connect with other people. And even, you know, some of the, the different tutorials or, you know, how-tos that I've done in the past... They might either conflict or they might kind of go along with what somebody's saying. And that's just getting all the new ideas out into the world. And like I always say, you know, forming a community, forming a culture. So it's definitely been fun running this podcast and definitely been fun talking to all you guys. And eventually, if I turn this into some kind of a career, that would definitely be very cool to, to be doing something that I love to do. So in the meantime, I'll just keep trying to come up with new ideas and, you know, keep trying to spread the good word about fermentation. And it really is nice, you know, with podcasts, being able to listen to what you actually want to listen to. I mean, the one podcast I listen to more than any other is really the survival podcast. You know, when I'm working out at the gym or, you know, when I'm out in the garden or, you know, if I'm out working on the motorcycle, it's nice to actually have something that you can listen to and learn at the same time while, you know, you might be doing something either monotonous or something that just takes a long time. But you can still add some of that value to your life that you otherwise wouldn't get from, you know, a normal television show or the news or any other kind of media like that. I think the audio format is definitely not going to go away anytime soon. You know, when video kind of rose and gained its prominence and now you have infotainment instead of actual news and, you know, actual information. I think a lot of people thought maybe audio was on its way out, you know, radio was on its way out, and possibly, you know, radio might be on its way out, but in terms of the internet and in terms of podcasting, that is just on the rise. I mean, you could listen to anything that you ever could have wanted to, and, you know, even audio books. There are some long-distance hikers that I follow, and they usually will be reading a book, you know, by listening to it. So in any case, podcasting has definitely been kind of fun in that way, and really anybody can do a podcast. All you really need is, you know, just a, like I have, a $40 microphone here, a computer, and, you know, just some time on my hands to actually do something like this. And, of course, an interest in whatever you're going to be talking about. I don't feel like I'm that fluid of a, a talker, but I try to put everything together and put it out for you guys so you guys can be kind of entertained, but then also, you know, you soak up this knowledge at the same time and just kind of do something with it, too. Also kind of creating kind of a, a call to action to actually do 
something rather than talk about just the theory of it, but to actually get out there and start doing some of these ferments, you know, get out there and create some culture. So again, Olga, thank you so much for the email and thank you for the compliment. I'll try to keep on podcasting for you. And don't forget to let me know how those pickles turned out. I'm sure they were pretty good. All right. The next one comes in from someone named Mala or Mela. And she says, I was going to this site and checking out the recipes. They are just awesome. My question is, how long are the recipes featured on the site? I do not see any recipes before July 22nd, 2014. And I was wondering if I should make notes on the recipes in case you take them down after a while. Thank you, Mala. So this email kind of made me laugh just a little bit only because the answer was so simple. And the reason you don't see any recipes before July 22nd, 2014 is because this site didn't even exist. There was no fermentation podcast and, you know, I wasn't podcasting at all. So Mala, if you're wondering where are all the rest of the recipes, they just hadn't been created yet. But I have more recipes on the way. And if you're wondering, you know, whether or not in the future I'm going to take the recipes down, anything that I actually put out onto the site is for everybody here. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you come by in another year, assuming that, you know, I'm actually still doing the podcast. I'll keep the website up, of course. But, you know, assuming that I'm still doing this and, you know, I'm still even around, then, of course, all the recipes are going to be there just fine. And you'll be able to always access them. It might take you know, a little longer to actually go back. Say if I I do a recipe now and then two years from now you go looking for one, you'll probably have to use the search function. And eventually, you know, if I make some kind of a a member section, I'll still have the all the recipes that I put out on the site on the site. But maybe in the future, I'll make some kind of a, a recipe book or a cookbook or something like that, you know, just for members only so they can have everything easily accessible in one book that you could sit on the counter. Just an idea I'm throwing around, but you don't have to worry about me taking the recipes down, you know, anytime soon. Anything that I put out on the site is just always there. And you can always comment on them. You can always reference them. So anyways, don't be worried, Mala. I'll have those on the site. Don't have to worry about it. Thanks again for the email. So the next one is another one coming in from Rebecca again. And she says, in reply to my podcast on ginger ale, she says, do you have any written instructions for making the ginger bug and then the ginger beer itself? Thanks. And, you know, when I had done the fermented sodas uh, podcast with the ginger ale and, and ginger bug and all that, I completely did an entire podcast. I think it might have been like 45 minutes long or something like that. And I just completely forgot. I didn't even make up a, a post, you know, for the whole recipe. So sometime in the near future, I'll have to actually make up a, a whole write-up on how to make the actual ginger bug, and then from there, making the actual ginger ale itself also. So it's funny, I did an entire podcast on it, but then didn't even do an actual post with the recipe. So Rebecca, sometime soon, I'll, I'll make up an entire post, you know, just so you can actually have something to access rather than having to listen to me drone on about fermented sodas and just get to the actual recipe. So thanks again, Rebecca, for reminding me about that. All right, the next one comes in from Pat, and Pat says, How long do I leave the onions on the kitchen counter before putting in the refrigerator? And I think this was probably in reference to some fermented onions that maybe I talked about on a Thanksgiving episode. So on that one, it really just varies. I mean, when I have done pickles or or, um, fermented pickled peppers or anything like that, since my house is like 72 degrees or so, usually it only takes me 
maybe three to five days, something along those lines. So in any case, what I've always told everybody is, you know, when you're fermenting something, if your house is colder, it's going to take much longer. If your house is warmer, like here in Florida, it's going to take much shorter, but you really just have to taste it every day. And probably, I would even say maybe after two days, start tasting it, at least when you start getting bubbles. And when it's like bubbling a good amount, at least start tasting these things to see what they taste like. So for pickled onions, I'm guessing maybe three to five days, something along those lines. But your results may vary and, you know, your tastes may be different than mine. So just keep on tasting it. The next one actually comes in from Annie, and it's more of a technical question about the podcast. But in any case, she says, Hi, wondering if you can help. When I click on the download link for the podcast, it doesn't download onto my computer. It just opens up a window and begins to play. All other podcasts I wanted to listen to can be downloaded so that you can transfer them to an MP3 player and listen to as much or as little as you like in one session. I am wanting to listen to the Jane Campbell interview, but I cannot spare one and a half hours in one go. Can you please let me know how I can download the podcast? Many thanks, Annie. So Annie, sometimes that's a a tricky one, but if you're on Windows like I am, you would just go to the download link and then right-click Save Target As or, you know, Save Link As or something along those lines, and then you should be able to download it. Another way to do it is if you're on like an iOS device, like an iPhone or an iPad or an iPod uh, Touch or something along those lines, is you can... Go to uh, iTunes and subscribe to the Fermentation Podcast. So you can just subscribe and then they'll automatically download. Or you can go on Stitcher, which is another app that you can subscribe and it'll automatically download. Or if you're on Android, you know, Stitcher also. And somebody even emailed me in the past few days about a, a dog catcher, kind of a, an Android app that I'd never heard of. But apparently they're listening to me on there too. So in any case, however you want to listen, you know, you can either subscribe, probably the easiest way is to subscribe on one of these apps. But if you just want to download, just go to the link and then right click and then download it. And then you can upload it however you're going to do that. You can also listen to it in the browser. But what I've found, uh, say, at least with a, a cell phone, as soon as you click on it, you have to leave it open. Otherwise, you might lose it and it loses the place, which is kind of why I like these apps in the first place. So, you know, when it downloads and you listen to, say, 20 minutes of it and then go about your business, then when you come back and listen to it, it actually saves your place, which is kind of nice. In any case, I hope you get that resolved so you can keep on listening. All right, the next one comes in from MLW, and they write it and say, I've been inspired by your podcast. I recently received a half-gallon fermenting jar with an airlock in the lid. I started my first ferment three days ago, pickled cucumbers. Just started to get cloudy. I was told by a friend to use three tablespoons of sea salt per four cups of water and ferment seven to 14 days. I will be trying seven on this first batch. Thanks for the podcast. And then later I I had written him back and then he writes back and says, my home temperature is about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I've been taking a photo every day and noticed the brine level increase about half inch in the jar. Is this normal? It also looks like the ends of the cucumbers were pressed to the glass, have pushed in with a little white around them. Could this be from something on the cucumber before starting the ferment? Thanks for your help, MLW. So actually, whoever gave you that recipe was exactly the same recipe as I use, which I think he said um, three tablespoons for four cups of water. So I use three-fourths a tablespoon of salt per cup of water, which is exactly the same ratio. So it sounds like you're on the right track there. And I bet it's kind of cool using an actual ceramic crock just to to get that old school feel of it. In any case, so 7 to 14 days, that definitely sounds like a full sour if your house temperature is 70 degrees. 
And I would think maybe even after three or four days, I would definitely check that just to see what they taste like. Otherwise, they're probably going to get a little bit too sour and maybe even go a little soft. But I guess you just never know. Anyways, in reference to the, the brine level actually rising up the jar, that's completely normal. And whenever I've done it the old school, you know, mason jar way, usually what I do is I'll take the whole jar and put it on some kind of a plate to catch the overflow because I usually fill it fairly close to the top so I don't have really that much brine showing when I put the, the smaller jar in it. But as soon as you start putting these cucumbers in there, they're usually pretty solid, but they are almost completely water. And when they start to pickle, the salt kind of shrivels them a little bit, and then they release their juices. And when the juices come out, it just starts making the, the brine overflow. So you'll definitely see a little bit of a brine rise, which is why you shouldn't ever fill the jar to the very top, because it'll definitely overflow. As the brine comes out, then usually whatever the mason jar or the weights on top, they'll just sink even farther. And when you cut a cucumber and then it starts to pickle, usually the ends do get kind of shrivelly, and you might even see a little bit of white there. But as long as they're under the brine and they're not above, you know, the brine in, in an oxygen environment, I wouldn't worry about anything that you see below it. And a lot of times you'll even see like this kind of white powdery stuff, you know, on the very bottom of the jar. That's completely normal, too, and it'll also get cloudy, and it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, the way pickles are. It gets cloudy, and when you taste it, it's definitely tangy. So it looks like you're on the right track, and I hope those turn out good. All right, so the final one of the day comes in from Richard. And Richard writes back again, and I kind of condensed it a little bit since it was a long one, but it was a very interesting one, so I, I decided to include it anyway. And he says, did I hear you say fermenting garlic and honey? If so, I want to know more. I'd love to slip a teaspoon of that into my wife's chamomile tea. I listened to the kombucha episode and it sounded so involved, so I decided to try buying it first to see if it was worth the effort. He says he bought a 12-ounce bottle for $3 and it was excellent. So, you know, I'll have to see if he makes some of it in the future. With the idea of considering a wider scope of diet ideas, I have to suggest my latest infatuation, and that's broths. And he puts a link to a, a broth video on YouTube. I'll put that in the show notes. And he says, Today I made a bone broth following Sally Fallon's book, Nourishing Bone Broth. It's incredible the amount of collagen that can be extracted from a pot full of bones and the flavors to die for. The trick I learned is to add ACV, which is apple cider vinegar, which extracts more nutrients and to simmer for 24 hours, which triples the amount of nutrients. I always kept vegetable and meat broth in the freezer to use in suits, but from the book I've learned, you should just keep it in the fridge and consume it every day. And then he goes on and asks, can you be a vegan and consume bone broth? I've learned that I can make a broth from beef jerky batches gone wrong and from inedible foods such as liver and other organ meats. It might be that pemmican was a sort of broth plus additional ingredients. And one interesting thing that he mentions in here that I didn't know was the food cakes that were in the Lewis and Clark expedition used was a, a broth-based recipe that started with a, a bone broth with grains and veggies and fruits. They took 100 pounds of it on their journey and that played a big role in their survival. I plan on making broths from foraged weeds this spring, especially nettles. And then he says brothers, and, you know, I guess he hyphenates it, you know, with broth in the middle there. So brothers, that's kind of an interesting play on words. 
So in any case, I'm glad to see that you're actually trying that honey and garlic. I think that'll actually turn out really good. And it does take quite a while. So, you know, if you think you're going to be dipping into it in like a couple weeks, it's probably not going to happen quite that fast. It might take a, a month or so. But in any case, you can probably keep it in there almost indefinitely. I would think um, honey is probably one of the most natural preservers out there. And I've seen somebody write in saying something about they don't think that honey and garlic is an actual fermentation because of the high sugar. But if you've ever seen a, a fermenting garlic in honey, I think you can be pretty sure that it's definitely fermenting because there are quite a few bubbles coming out of it. You know, it can actually get very active. So it's definitely a fermentation. I'm sure it's definitely very good for you. You know, garlic is amazing for you. Honey is amazing for you. And combine them both and add a little bit of life in there. And I'm sure it's just a, a killer recipe for a, a sore throat. And some of the comments on the bone broths, those have always kind of interested me also. Uh, mostly in the fact that it is very nutritious. And, you know, you're wondering whether a vegan can have bone broth. Obviously not because it's made from animals. But I think if I was raising my own animals and actually slaughtering my own animals, I'd be much more inclined to have that rather than from like a, a factory farm or some kind of intensive animal operation. And at least in that sense, you know, you can know that the animals were actually treated well. And at the same time, they were actually given nutritious food rather than, you know, the garbage that they give them nowadays. So in any case, you know, sometimes what I've done is, you know, you just kind of save the scraps here and there, vegetables, and then you take a big pot and just keep on boiling it. And then you make a, a vegetable broth. In Florida, that's not necessarily very efficient just because it's so hot here. I know more in the, the colder environments, you would have a, a wood stove going all the time. And just to use up some of that residual heat, you can just keep having a, a pot boiling or, you know, simmering at all times. But in Florida, that's not necessarily a, a good thing. It'll just keep the house so hot. So most of the time, I just buy my own, you know, vegetable broth or veg vegetable stock. But in any case, you know, if I ever want to make some, it's definitely a lot more nutritious than what you're going to buy because you, you can put everything that you want into it. You know exactly what went into it. But very interesting on the Lewis and Clark thing. I didn't know, you know, some of those cakes were actually made from a broth and I'm sure they, they probably kept them going. So anyways, thanks again, Richard, for the email. And I appreciate, you know, everybody that's written in today. It usually turns out to be an interesting episode when you see everybody's questions and see where everybody is. And it definitely makes it feel, you know, a little bit more of a community. We actually have quite a few listeners now. I think um, I've probably had maybe like 14,000 downloads of the podcast so far. So that's actually quite a few people listening. It's, you know, pretty exciting to hear from all you guys. So anyways, just keep the emails coming and, you know, I'll keep responding. And, and maybe you'll have your comment or email on a show like this, you know, a listener feedback show. So write in and let me know whether you like these listener feedback shows. I find them pretty interesting. It gives me a chance to actually interact with you guys. So as always, everything I covered on today's show will be in the show notes. I invite you guys to come out to fermentationpodcast.com and leave me some comments on today's show. And just let me know what you think or if you have any questions. Also, don't forget to subscribe to get updates of new shows and blog posts by email. This has been Paul Bates from the Fermentation Podcast, along with all of you guys, encouraging you to put fermentation into practice, ferment responsibly, and get out there and create some culture. <laughs>